Welcome to On Demand, where startup B2B SaaS companies come to grow. When it comes to demand generation, there's no one-size-fits-all solution. That's why we created this podcast, to help founders and marketers like you unlock a combination that's right for your business. Let's get into it. Eden Badani, welcome to the podcast. How are you doing today? Hi, good things. Thank you so much for having me. It's really, really looking forward to speaking with you today. Yeah, likewise. I'm really excited about this conversation because I'm a huge fan of copywriting, but I also know that it's not necessarily one of my strengths. So I'm really looking forward to, to discussing the topic with you in, in a lot more detail. You're so experienced in this area. I think there's a lot that the audience are going to learn from this episode. So thank you for agreeing to come on. Let's start off with the usual introductions. Who are you? What do you do? Where do you work? Tell the audience a little bit about you. Yeah, absolutely. Um, my name is um, Erin Medani. I'm a conversion copywriter and messaging strategist. I work primarily with SaaS tech, IT, and IoT companies, but the full do the full commut, the full range of copywriters. So way back to that solidifying your vision, mission, strategic narrative, and what's that founding brand voice and tone? How you're going to differentiate? Not so in the language you use as well, the language and the specific terms or verbs that you like to, the vocabulary that you choose to express what that is, that business value that your product delivers, but as well right through to the actual wallet, the customer-facing, let's say, assets that you have. So like the website, email campaigns, um, marketing campaigns or ad sequences and things like that as well. So right through the, the whole spectrum. Excellent. So we've got lots to cover. So I want to start off by thinking about copywriting. For somebody listening who maybe they're a founder or they're an early marketing hire, they want to do some of the copywriting themselves we're going to think a little bit more about how they can enhance the copywriting that they produce. But then also later in the episode, I want to pivot more towards what working with a consultant like yourself might look like and, and how you might advise early stage startups as well. So we want to try and balance the practical with the more strategic stuff. So let's kick off with with copywriting. We often hear, you often read about copywriting being sort of combination of art meets science. So I'm curious to start off with just what's your take on that balance? How do you strike that balance between the creative side and the more data side? It's a lot of science in it because there's so much that we do with A-B testing and things like that to actually make sure that the copy is hitting the mark before going and you know, fully launching it out. There is a huge component of experimentation, of creating hypotheses and experimentations of like traditional you know, science, scientific disciplines. But at the same time, it's a lot more along the political sciences. So it's more like sociology. It's more like anthropology. It's about to be really good at copywriting. It's really merging that intuit, deep intuitive understanding of people and how they think and how they make decisions and how they actually read things online or how they read them on a tablet or on a mobile. And again, we don't really read online like we do when we pick up a book when we read it or when we read from a Kindle. Like it's it's these are completely different use cases of how people interact with content. So it's having an understanding of who you're talking to on a deep level, how people make decisions online, how people interact with where, you know, with the different formats of your copy. And bridging that gap between between their world and what you want to say about your product that's going to be most exciting to them. We can talk on and on and on about the amazing things that our products do, but our audience doesn't need to know everything. They only need to know this much in order to get them interested in taking the next step. So I think in terms of science, there is a scientific component. It's probably 80% science and 20% art, really what copywriting really is. 80% of that deep audience research, that deep customer research, getting into their hearts, understanding how they talk, how they express things, how they interact with content, 
where they interact with content online. Again, all these things, you know, device display, all of these things impact on how the copy is received and interpreted. So it's a lot of political signs. And at the same time, that 20% of art, it's not art as in fluff, but it's more like intuition. So it's like using, okay, what do you think is going to have a really good impact on people? What is that different? How are you doing something differently? What's going to make it stand out from what's what other people are saying? You know, everyone is saying it's an all-in-one platform. Well, how can you say that without using that word? So that's going with the kind of intuition and that created out-of-the-box thinking that you combine with the other elements of copywriting to have that combination of art and science. So where does empathy come into this? I mean, in the work that I do, empathy drives I would say 80, 90% of the work that I do, without that, you really are in a really difficult situation if you're not able to genuinely empathize with your target audience. Is that something that's important to you in the work that you do, that that deep empathy with the, the target audience? Absolutely. Again, it comes from that deep understanding of your audience. If you don't respect them, people feel it really quickly if the marketing is not respective. It doesn't respect the target audience. So I'll give it just from all kinds of examples, from being hit in the face with a long-form blog post or a long ad, it's not that people won't be interested in what you have to say, but at the same time, how much time do they actually have to to dedicate to reading this thing, you know, reading this beautiful thing that you've written? And it could be very, very good. And for the few percent, that small percentage of people who do read it, they might convert very well. But when you're looking at a wider scale, a lot of marketing assumes too much that the people on the receiving end of the marketing are going to be really excited and optimistic about, oh, this is a really cool ad. I'm going to click on it. But when that doesn't happen, they go, oh, it's an ad. Scroll past. Oh, it's an ad. My ad block is not working. Oh, it's an ad. (laughs) They're in the middle of doing other things. Ads and a lot of marketing in general is just very disruptive to whatever is going on in their day. And you can feel that difference. So again, that's you feel it a lot with sort of a lot of the old direct response style marketing and copywriting that it's very much press as many pain points and buttons as much as possible to get people's emotions riled up. But people recognize that as well. You know, talking to sophisticated markets here, people know that. They know that you're trying to push their buttons. They know that trying to get a rise, get something out of them. So People are really, really quick to dismiss things like that these days, unless they're in that tiny sliver of people who are actually looking to buy right now and they feel that burning pain. And that's maybe what one to five percent of the market at any point in time. For the other 95%, you have to make sure you're right. You're not alienating them in your pursuit of conversions. How do you develop this deep empathy then? If it's a loaded question because sometimes when I work with founders, they will typically write the copy themselves on their website and they will obviously be very passionate about the products and services that they've developed they are in effect an extension of them and so the very cynical view is well the product should sell itself you know this is clearly solving a significant pain point for our audience we just need to describe what the product does what's your view on that and and does storytelling come into play here how prescriptive should founders be or should writers be on these on these early stage SaaS startup websites I think the disconnect often happens with founders. And again, you have all the right to be totally passionate about your product. I definitely get it. It's your business. It's your baby. A hundred percent. And that story does need to be told. But when does that story need to be told? So a lot of it is about the timing. So it's not that you can't tell that story, but that's a story that you tell in the demo. They don't need that whole story up front. You know, save some of that magic for the demo. If you give them all that story up front, first of all, it's so overwhelming. The cognitive load is huge. People can't process 
what you know about your product. They can only process so much in a certain point in time. Give them a taste, make them hungry and excited to hop in the demo or hungry and excited to try up and start onboarding for if you've got a PLG, you know, product like growth thing going on. But pace yourself. I think that's the thing is just to pace yourself. You're so excited and you're so passionate and that's great. Save that. I'm not saying don't use that, but you need to talk about that transformation. You need to talk about what spurred that difference. Again, what was that turning point or that tipping point when you realized as well that other tools, you know, there was nothing that actually fit that fit because then your audience will be able to identify with, well, I feel that same way too. Or you know what? I've tried three other tools and I still haven't found something that works for me. I understand like they're able to identify with what the founder went through as well in in the creation of this product. So tell that story of that pain point. What was that tipping point? When was that moment that you realized that nothing else exists? I have to actually do something about it. Take the momentum of that as well and then talk about the end transformation as well. So again, if we remove all the talk about the features and the amazing things that it does on a practical level, then everything gets too fluffy. But at the same time, don't exclude that pain or that problem story at the front and then don't exclude talking about that transformation in the end is that what your solution actually gives people. What is that ultimate? And it's not just grow your business, sell more online. Because <laughs> everyone, everyone says that. It's not just grow your business, sell more online, win more customers, convert more customers. I'm sorry, everyone is saying that. You can be a B2C product, you can be a B2C SaaS or a B2B enterprise SaaS. It's the same, it's the same thing that they're saying at the end of the day. Beyond that, so what does that end transformation look like for you? Not just what the founders saw for themselves, but as well, what is that is delivered to your customers? And to get to that, you need to as well talk to your design partners, talk to your investors, or talk to other people outside your circle. So go on LinkedIn, ask for feedback. So I'm looking for feedback. I want to hear people do it and people will be happy to, to participate. But you need that external balance. So say someone, have someone tell you what that end transformation is like for them to be able to then communicate that to people because that's what people really want. There's the classic example of, you know, someone wants to buy a drill. Well, why are they buying a drill? It's not just they want a drill and they want this size drill and they want to be fast and they want to be, or they want to be cheap or they want to be, to do the job quickly. Like these are all functional things and that's important, but why do they want to drill even in the first place so they can drill a hole in the wall? Okay. That's the immediate outcome. But then that transformation is so that they can hang a picture and they can impress their friends when they come around, invite them around for dinner. So, you know, what is that? Talk about the picture hanging on the wall and the impressed friends and connect that back to how your product is helping them achieve that end and not just not just the product itself because otherwise then you're just everyone's just comparing drills against drills. That reminds me of the IKEA ad that's currently doing the rounds on on LinkedIn. I saw a post recently, absolutely beautiful advert. It was probably for the Swedish market, but it was showing the products but showing the products and the big reveal at the end was effectively that we're very happy and proud to be second it was all to do with child furniture for kids and and functional items for for children and the product shots were didn't have any children in and it was and then it slowly revealed that actually it was the father looking after the child or that there was other people looking after the child and it wasn't about the product and it was that emotional hook i thought it was an absolutely beautiful advert well i will link to it in the show notes because it wasn't saying it's a great high chair for children. It was actually in a sense that they won't use it and that you and we understand you. It was a beautiful advert. Have you seen that? Yes, I thought it was just so powerful because it goes right back to what you said just a few, a few seconds ago about empathy, having that high level of empathy and then actually having the guts 
to communicate that, to actually echo that back to the audience and say, we actually get you because I'm a parent too. And I've, when you become a parent, it's like you suddenly realize how much kids stuff is an industry in and of itself. You get hit with ads for millions of things. And everyone's like, this is the safest and this is great. And this, you know, just to compare it to another industry, this is the best. It's the safest. It's the comfiest. It's the prettiest. It's the most expensive. So it must be the best or it's the cheapest. So it must be okay. But at the end of the day, you know, it's like, how often do you actually use these things? Or when you buy, you know, when you buy your kid a dress and then they go to a party and then they stick up all over their dress and it's like, so it's kind of like that thing again, just to, that was often a tangent there, but it's the idea that again, so the Ikea ad, it was a high chair and then it panned out to the dad sitting his kid on his knee and feeding him. And it's like, you know what? That's what everyone knows. You buy a high chair because you do use it some of the time, but then some of the times you just don't and that's okay. And it was such a high level of empathy, just recognizing that again, it was really, really powerful. It was the empathy and it was the emotion as well, because that's also, I mean, I'm stereotyping here a little bit, but a technical founder, for example, very good with the code, very good at developing the product, but perhaps, and in some cases, people I've spoken to by their own admission, it's not a strong point, not a strong suit, the emotional intelligence, the emotional empathy, the beauty of that IKEA ad, and I suppose the broader discussion as well is when you're able to demonstrate that empathy, your connection and the resonance that you have with the audience is so much stronger. It's not about the product. It's it's about saying, we get you. We know where you're coming from. And it just so happens that we also have a product that helps you. Yeah, exactly. One other thing that you mentioned as well is cognitive load. And I think that's a really misunderstood concept as well in, in the work that I do with founders and, and founders more broadly is understanding how limited the cognitive load is of your audience. You mentioned it in the answer just before there. Could you just speak to that? Because when I'm working with founders, let's say we're developing a campaign and you're constantly trying to remove things, you're constantly trying to take things out. And the argument is that we've got to be respectful of the cognitive load here. We, we don't want to have too much in. We don't want to overwhelm. Talk a little bit more about cognitive load because I don't think it's a concept that's really fully understood or appreciated. Yeah, absolutely. Again, it's just the idea that we we all innately have a bias against work. So some people traced it back. They say system one, system two thinking, lizard brain and all that. You know, everyone can interpret it how how they want or back to the point in time where we we like to conserve energy. We don't like to spend energy. It takes effort to expend energy and then we need to expend more energy to gain energy back by, you know, eating food, etc. Then we have a bias against work. We don't want to do things that are hard. No one wants to do things that are hard. That's hard. No one wants to. That's why we expect things to be personalized. That's why we expect things to be intuitive. That's why we get mad when things don't, like tech don't work. Not necessarily because we're not accepting of the fact that there are flaws, but just because we want things to be easy. We like easy. Easy means, again, less energy expended. We can keep going on about our day and we don't have to get too much into it. But the the more complicated the language the more we stuff into an explanation, the harder it is for someone again to process. It's not that it's not interesting. It's not that they don't care and they can really care. Like they can really care. But that window, that small window of opportunity you have to engage with someone and make it establish a good first impression or establish a genuine connection is really, it's a really, really small window. I'm not going to say attention spans because attention span is something that gets thrown around a lot. Like we get compared to goldfish and things like that. And it's just not true. We can focus our attention still for long periods of time. It's getting worse, <laughs> but, but we can still focus our attention on the things that really matter to us. 
but it's having that understanding that you only have this short window of time. So what is the most, the one most important message that you want to get across? I'll give you an, an example. I was working with someone on their Facebook ads recently. We were looking at it and he wanted to list out all the benefits of the product in the ad. And I said, mate, you have you have to take that. You've got four different benefits that you're cramming into this ad. So create an ad set for each of those different benefits. One says it saves them time. One says it, you do something faster. One says it automates. And one, I don't remember what the last one was, but there were four different things that, that it could do. I said, try each one of those in an angle. Make that the focus of the angle and see which ones the audience responds to more, which ones get more clicks. And then, you know, you can double down on those one or two angles, one of those two key benefits. And that's what you need to talk about the most. Because if you talk about everything and the ad doesn't convert, you don't know what worked and what didn't. But if you focus it down and you split that out and you give people one thing to focus on at the right time, someone they're they're freaking out about automation. They can't automate their cold email outreach. They see an ad cold email, automate your cold email. Fantastic. You've hit them right. They didn't have to think too much to process it. It does cold email outreach. Great. I'm going to click on that. I want to learn more about that. But if you come with, it does cold email outreach and automated appointment bookings and lead form to end and, and people go like, what? Like you've lost them after the set, you know, after the second or third feature. So actually split that up, split those benefits and features up, pass them out, see what people respond to the most. And then that's also going to give you a good indication as to what you need to focus on in general in your marketing. So again, separate everything out make it more focused, you reduce that cognitive load, but then it also gives you the opportunity to focus your experiments more. And so you know you're going to get better ROI from your marketing in the end. It's very focused. It's much more focused. One of the things that is probably the most condensed version of what we've been discussing is the value proposition. This, I think, is where all of these principles come to a head. Is there any way that we can try and break out of this, we do X for Y? Is that just a model that works? So many SaaS products talk about we help X do Y, that has become ubiquitous in the industry. Is there a better alternative or is that stood the test of time because it's very effective? So there's two things at play here. So one, it has we've seen that it has stood the test of time and everyone keeps, everyone talks about that's how everyone sells products. It doesn't matter if it's a consumer-facing direct-to-consumer product, this is X for Y, or if it's a, you know, it's a B2B enterprise SaaS and then they have multiple, we do X for Y because they have so many use cases. On the one hand, you have that because it works, and then because it works, you sometimes have to use it. It's like designs with websites. Everyone in the hero section expects to see a call to action button. I don't know how many people actually click on that call to action button that's in the hero section of a homepage. Like the percentage is going to be very, very, very small, but people expect to see one there. If you don't have one there, people are going to bounce away because they expect to see a call to action button there. Go figure. So the same idea with the value proposition, you have to have it at least at some point so that it's a signaling to people to help them understand again, to get back to reducing that cognitive load to say, this is X for Y, great, I understand it. It sounds good, I want to continue, doesn't sound good, I'm not, you know, this is not for me, I'm not going to continue. Great, you've saved, you've saved yourself a prospect that's not a good fit and they've saved themselves the time of going down a rabbit hole of, of a demo and then a sales call and another follow-up and another follow-up. So on the one hand, you need to use it. But again, going back to that thing. So just because you say we we do X for Y, don't forget to tell the story on the other side of it. So don't forget to tell what's that. We do X for Y so you can. And then what's that ultimate transformation they get out of it as a result? 
You've mentioned that a few times, actually, the ultimate transformation. Let's let's double click on that a bit because I think that's super important as well. So my interpretation of what you're saying there is that you would you typically work with a client and, and really try and understand what's the process, what's the transformation that occurs as a result of using the product. Could you just unpack that that term a little bit and maybe how you would go about advising a company on realizing what that transformation is? So this is in line with the jobs to be done methodologies. So when I say transformation, it's like what is that actual job? What is that job that people want the product to do? And we say job, it's not, it doesn't stop at, well, you're going to use this, again, taking the same example, this automated cold email outreach because it's going to save you time with your outreach. That's an immediate benefit that you get as a result. The end transformation is that you've got more, you have the opportunity to close more sales easily because you're not chasing after prospects. You're getting a steady stream of prospects straight to your inbox that you can take straight to straight to demos and close them more easily. So, and that means you're going to be able to close more sales more easily. And so it's going, you'll be able to hit your quarterly, you know, your quarterly goals more easily. You'll be able to, so again, keep taking it further and further and further. You can keep going. And there's another methodology, they call it five whys. I know that Toyota as a company uses it. They start with one why. So they ask, you know, this is what people want, why? And then take it back each time asking why to get back to what is that real reason that people want something or what is that ultimate benefit or transformation that they're looking for as a result. I'll give you just an example. So I was working with a company recently, an international data science company. The CEO had some very, very interesting thought leadership, and that actually became the underpinning of their entire rebrand and new positioning as a result. So he said, for example, that we don't come in saying that we're the best. We come in saying that we know that you're the CEO of X company. You've been running it for 20 years. We don't know as much about your company as you do, but we can come in with solutions and help you make what you have better. So you have existing power. We exist as a solution to help you increase your power, channel it better. So again, so you've shifted the entire narrative to come in and say, we're best in class. We're number one. We can do all these amazing things. We can make your stuff better than what it already is, which is going to be put a CEO on defense, to be completely honest. If you're trying to say what you have is bad, we can make it better. It's going to put anyone on defense immediately. And actually coming and saying, we recognize that you have this unique power. Your business has become a household name for a certain reason. We can help you apply these things to help grow that, to help channel that better, to help keep you moving forward. So understood that they wanted to continue these Companies wanted to continue expanding and growing their power, their existing power that they already had. So we just aligned that. So we were looking at what they really wanted. What were they really using AI and ML for? Like what was that actual thing? It wasn't just to automate things. It wasn't just to make things faster. It wasn't just to reduce headcount so we can save, you know, so we can save money every quarter. It was actually no, because we want to keep growing our power and stay relevant in the market, in a fast changing market. So that was their jobs to be done. That was their end transformation. That's how we were able to align with it. And at the same time, it enables you to differentiate from hundreds, if not thousands of other AI ML companies that are all doing the same thing. It's a fantastic example. And, and I'm interested as well in the experience that you've got. Have you seen demonstrable changes in conversions in, in some of the key metrics that you would expect to see on a website from being clearer, both in terms of your value prop but in terms of just more effective copywriting, I'm I'm thinking of somebody perhaps who might like the idea or the sound of improving the copywriting, but do we have any other evidence in terms of maybe some data that supports the impact that good quality copy can have on a website? I'll give a small a small example. So I worked with a company a couple of years ago. It's a Belgian luxury handbag manufacturer. 
So a completely different field. I'll show you just the example. So they and they were running landing pages. They were looking to expand into the US, but they didn't know how to do it. At the same time, they had two problems. They need to sell a brand story because no one knows them. They need to improve brand awareness, but they also need to not they need to get sales moving as well as a result. So they can't just do brand awareness and we can't just push sales because no one knows who they are yet or appreciates the value of their products. What we actually did was we we created a long form landing page. And when I say long form, it was about probably two, two and a half thousand word long landing page. So this is going to negate what I meant about cognitive mode, but I'll get to that in a second. They were running display ads to it and the page converted at 25% from cold traffic. And it's still converting. They're running it two and a, two and a half years later and it's still running because what we what we did was we we took in an understanding of the audience's awareness. So audiences were coming across these display ads when they were already reading blogs, they were reading fashion blogs, they were reading Reddit. They were in a state of mind where they were already reading. So they were engaged in a pleasurable an activity that they were enjoying. They were in content consumption mode, as you could say, whereas it's very different if they're scrolling on TikTok or YouTube to actually get them to move to cross to a landing page and read something. You have to make them switch their mindset, which is, which is huge. So we, they were already in content consumption mode. So it was very easy to move them to another piece of content. At the same time, that gave us the opportunity to both tell that transformation, that brand story, that rich brand awareness piece, connecting with this, telling the story of the founders as well. Look, they, they these fashionable women who were also businesswomen, they didn't have a bag that suited them. They went out, they made something themselves. And all the details that went into it, how it's manufactured, where it's made, the details and the stick, like all these beautiful pieces. And then all the time as well, pushing links for, for this wonderful bag that they're going to. It's not, it's not cheap. It's a 700 euro bag. So it's not like it's a cheap bag. And it's still converting today. So I think the, the ability there is that if you align with that in transformation, we were able to tell, first of all, that really powerful story, but you were able to align with that end transformation, what the women were looking for. They were looking for something that looks as stylish as it is functional. And you can't come out and say, this bag is stylish as it is functional because it's like no one's going to listen to you because everyone can make that claim. What they had and what was able to help them differentiate was that rich story of discovery. Then the way they were able to present the solution was something that was really innovative and also that looked gorgeous. It says I'm a bit biased, but I think it looks gorgeous. And then be able to tell that story in a compelling way as well that the page actually converts. And the thing is with that, it's all the pieces of the puzzle, isn't it? It's not just saying, right, it's the copy on the page. It's the where is the person at in the buying journey? Have they been exposed to the brand before? Have they seen maybe subtle display images of of a bag that aesthetically looks great? And then when they land on the page, it sounds like more like a hero's journey type narrative where they, they went on a, on a mission to try and find something. They couldn't find something. Then they just, then they developed it and then they brought it back. And it's a, that lends itself very nicely to that kind of longer form narrative because it's telling a story that people that will resonate with the ideal, ideal buyer. But it's not just the first exposure they've had to the brand. It's, it's within, within a sequence. And it's, it sounds like a very considered approach to use long form as part of that sequence. Again, to address what I mentioned earlier about cognitive load, the reason why we weren't so concerned about cognitive load because we did understand the state of mind that the audience had before they were actually clicking through. So we knew that they would be reading on Forbes or Business Insider. We knew they were already reading. So when you're reading a long-form article, it's easy to move them to a long-form article. 
entirely different world. Again, if it's someone scrolling on YouTube or TikTok or someone scrolling on LinkedIn, you're trying to move them through to an ebook or a landing page. It's really hard. You have to go about it a bit more delicately. Again, that's why you need to take steps and really address the cognitive load because there's low cognitive load on social media. And then to click through to something, you have to switch your brain into think like in not just cons- consumption mode, into thinking mode. Here we're able to go from content consumption to content consumption. It was great. Like it was, it's a very smooth, they don't have to actually think. They gradually be- start to think about the product and it's very subtle. But when you're going from any other any other format, usually the shift is really hard. So again, but if you have an ad, a YouTube ad, go to a landing page where the first thing they see is another video. It's a video of video. Like if you're doing a long content post, content post, ad, you know, short form ad, short form landing page, like make it match up and it's that cognitive load is reduced. So it's not just cognitive load is not just about the length, but it's also about how the content matches up on both sides, the before the click and after the click. And as well, then how the content is actually spaced out on the page. So we, it was very much written like a breezy magazine article, lots of images, lots of this. It wasn't like, yes, it was two and a half thousand words long, but it wasn't like chunks of text one after the other. Yeah, I love it. And it's also about setting the expectations as well. You're starting to generate as part of the brand awareness piece. You're showing the buyer how you produce content, what your content looks like, where they, where they first come across it, and then that's reinforced when they hit the landing page and it's consistent with where they've come from. You're using the whole campaign as a way to structure and manage those expectations about the copy so that the person is more likely to engage with that copy as well. It's so much more than just the, the text on the page. I love these. These are great examples. So before we pivot into you and maybe some of the work that you do in terms of how you would help a founder or help, help a SaaS company, Let's just give people a couple of quick tips in terms of things that they should be very mindful of that they may be doing wrong at the moment. Give us a couple, one or two examples of things that somebody could just quickly audit their own website against and see how they're doing in a couple of different areas. Absolutely. I think the first tip, and this is what I love to share with everyone, is read your writing back out to yourself out loud. Just like a programmer is going to read their code back out to themselves to find the bug, you know, read a code to rub up a duck to find the flaws in the code, read your writing back out to yourself out loud. You will immediately notice where a sentence feels too long or where there should be an extra, you know, where there should be a full stop and another beginning of a sentence because there's a natural pause for breath. You'll find sentences that are clunky. You'll come across words. It's like, why did I put that word in there? In the first place, it makes no, it has, adds no weight, adds no value to this sentence. It helps you catch all of those things up front and it enables you to edit the copy significantly. So taking out the weight of the copy, there's a visual weight in copy that's not talked about a lot. So again, that's why if someone is reading a novel, like they can, you can have a page full of text and they'll read it and that's fine. You know, but when you have website copy, if you have a page that's just sentence after the other, it's going to be almost impossible for them to read. So by visually spacing things out, it enables them to process it much more easily. Again, back to cognitive load. But having that understanding, pacing things out, just it helps you catch all of those little things where you can break up centers. It also helps you catch where ideas aren't even strong enough. So suddenly you read something back out, you go, well, that doesn't sound right. (laughs) That doesn't sound very accurate. Actually, I should be using a different word or maybe that, you know, that doesn't sound quite right. And you're able to actually fix that. And it makes a huge difference. You can always tell when something's been written in a Google Doc and then has gone straight on a website or straight in an ad without having someone having read it back out loud to themselves. If you don't feel like reading out yourself, you can put it in um, any one of the AI tools and just 
add an automated voice to it and you can just listen to it. You go, wow, that's really, it's really because how we write is not how someone's going to read it. You get really reflective. You can get caught up in your head so much when we write. I think that's really the, the biggest tip that I'd probably give anyone. Great. So let's move on to you and the services that you offer, the work that you do. What are some of the signs that somebody needs a professional copywriter? What are some of the indicators that they should be aware of that perhaps calling somebody like you is what they need to do? I think when you have trouble, I think the, big, the biggest one, and, and it happens all the time when you have trouble, even explaining what you do in like three, four sentences. If you can't really, and again, I'd, I'd say even one to two sentences, you should be able to get the core idea of what your product does or that that key transformation or job to be done or benefit that it delivers should be able to communicate that in one to two sentences. That's such a powerful tool for any founders. It's not because that's going to be the headline on your the website because anyone who talks to you, any meeting you go to, any networking event you go to, anywhere, people are always going to ask, who are you? You know, what do you do? What does your product do? You have to have a concise way of explaining that. And if you can't do that, then that's a real problem. That means there's a lack of clarity. When you struggle to get clarity around your own product, if you don't have that clarity yourself, it's going to be really, it's almost impossible for anyone else on the outside looking in to be able to understand that. Again, it's like a shop window. If your shop window is mucky on the inside, no, you know, if it needs a clean, if it's dusty on the inside, no one's going to be able to see through it, even though the dust is on your side, not on theirs. But you give it a good wipe, make sure it's really clear and everyone can see how amazing your product is. And the second time is usually when there's a struggle articulating which are the key benefits. So again, there are so many things that the product does. There are so many features that it has, but then what are the benefits of those features and which ones are most important? So that's usually, you know, a process of experimentation. Said, or you separate the benefits out and you talk about each one. If you have a bit of budget to play with, you talk about each one in different ads or in your outreach emails, you know, free to send, cold outreach emails take we have a product that does X and the second one, you have a product that does Y, we have a product that does Z and you can alternate between them and see the response rates as well. So again, you don't even have to have that budget for that. But just having that process of what are those most important things that we need to focus on? What are those key things that we need to communicate? If that's a struggle, then everything else, any investor pitches, any social media buyers, just anything that you're going to try to do where you have to communicate and talk about your product, it's going to be very difficult. And that's usually where a copywriter, a skilled copywriter can come in and help give you, give a founder clarity on that. I'm really interested as well in, in the way that you work with with clients when you, you have a new client come on board. Could you just walk us through at a high level how you would do that? Because I'm interested in the process, of course, but I'm also interested in some of the insights that come up and key moments along that process. For me, it seems pretty straightforward. There's usually three part process: then research and discovery, and then there's the the actual writing bit, and then there's testing and you know validation and launch. But that first part, the research and discovery, is the most crucial part, and that's where all the insights come out. I've met so many clients in the past that's like we skip the research and we just get to the writing bit, and then it's it always doubles the amount of time that the writing that the writing takes because there's no there's no research to back it up. It's all people are throwing around ideas off the top of their head and there's no one has any clarity about anything. No one can say if something is right or wrong, nothing was agreed on beforehand. It ends up being a huge mess for everyone and makes the founder stress, it makes the founder stress, it makes the copywriter stress. But having that going through a really solid research and discovery phase is just fascinating. Being being an external party speaking with the founder, speaking with the CTO, speaking with the CMO, speaking with the you know the chief product officer, 
or VPs or whoever whoever's in charge of these different fields, usually it's product marketing, customer success and sales because customer success is usually on the receiving end of what's, what's wrong and you need to know how to address those objections up front. But key insights then come and you're able to actually look back and you're able to take a step back and look at what everyone's saying that's the same and often you'll find there's a lot more consensus than a lot of people think that they have. So everyone might be expressing the same idea in different ways and that's okay because everyone is a little bit different but when you take a step back you find that there are gems that there's a lot of consensus or there are things that were that were unsaid, things that you can feel. Again, that comes into that little bit of intuition, that 20% of art. It's like, so what is that? What is everyone getting at when they're talking about the product but they haven't actually said, they actually have to put words to it? And you can find those things like that. Like that is absolutely fascinating when that happens. It's really, really powerful when that happens. And then at the same time, if they have paying customers to interview them, to try and speak with them as a paying customer that love the product, understand why they love it, understand what made them convert to it, understand what's that ongoing ongoing value that they see in it just to make sure that you're positioning right. And that combined with the with the research and market research, of course, to understand what competitors are saying to make sure you're taking a different enough stance in how you talk about your product. It's so powerful what they come out with all those all of those insights. Like it's it's incredible. Just a small example. I was working with a founder. They had an app that they were calling it an outdoor mapping tool because that was kind of the category that it was in. So it was a map. It would let map the outdoors. You want to go hiking up a hill. You could see all the terrain. You could plan a route. Could see recommended routes from other people who'd been there before. Like it was pretty. It was pretty interesting. But when I looked at the user research, no one called it an outdoor mapping tool. It was not not the extreme sports enthusiasts that were using it for their trail running and their and skiing like that and not the people who were just using it for their fit like they were stuck at home and was like I'm going to go out and go for a walk because I want to get healthy and use it but no one called it an outdoor mapping tool everyone said they used it to plan their next outdoor adventure and I came back to the founder I said listen it still fits in the category of outdoor mapping tool but you also have all these features that an outdoor mapping tool doesn't have. You have this community aspect, you have these shared routes aspect, you have these recommended aspect, like you have this other community aspect and no one is calling it an outdoor mapping tool. Everyone is calling it, you know, they use it to plan their adventures, their outdoor adventures. So you need to call it an outdoor adventure planner. That's when it kind of clicked for everyone and they were like, oh, gosh, yeah, well, because, you know, functionally, Functionally, it is an outdoor mapping tool, but what's that ultimate benefit? They are able to plan their next outdoor adventure. Like they're able to go out into the outdoors with confidence, conquer the conquer nature, you know, do all these really cool things. That was really powerful. It was a, so that was a really powerful shift for everyone in how they're actually talking talking about it as well. And they they got acquired a little while back, and as I saw in the press release, they were still using outdoor adventure planners. I thought that was really awesome. <laughs> They were acquired by an outdoor mapping tool because they're an outdoor planner. So there you, you, go. you might have to go back in and correct that. <laughs> it's funny because you, when you were saying that, I was thinking of the word that came to my mind was explorer, exploration. I have a tool on my own phone which is similar in some respects to what you've described, and it is a, a map explorer because factually it's correct that that's exactly what the product does, but it's about that transformation. It's what that facilitates. It's what that unlocks in the lives of the user as opposed to the functional benefits of the product. I think it's a it's a superb example and uh, one that I think will resonate a lot with people listening. It's fantastic. 
So give us one or two other insights. Do you have any other examples like that of that kind of journey that somebody's gone through in that realization of working with you of, of the impact of having an external set of eyes on the problem? Have you got another example? Because you've shared some fantastic examples. I want to try and mine a few more. Yeah, just another example of someone who's gone through that process and the some of the insights that they've received. In the work that I do with founders, I think that most foundational breakthrough comes through that def- actual definition. What is that verbiage or what is the you know, what are the actual words, that vocabulary that you use to describe your product? Because that has a huge impact on how it's interpreted. I've seen it happen time and time again. So it's like in, for example, with the AI, with the AI ML company, it's like we're talking about we're an organization. It's you're not, you're a catalyst. You're a catalyst for someone else's growth. You're enabling to grow. So they started, they're calling themselves, we're, you know, we're a catalyst for your growth. So you don't, people understand you're an organization, but that, but with the word AI catalyst, like they understand how you're enabling them to achieve value from working with you. Same on the line with the Outdoor Adventure Planner. There was a company that a founder I was working with that they said they had an app that they created. They called it a home and lifestyle app. It's like home and lifestyle app could be anything, it could be Pinterest, it could be absolutely anything. Like anything from interior design to anything. It's like, but what people are actually doing, they did their own user research and the user research was saying that, well, I use it to, to make my home reflect my vibe. And it's like, so, so they were able to pick and match things from a, you know, items of furniture and that from a marketplace and then actually buy the things. So not like Pinterest where you don't know if you can actually buy the things that you've seen or not. But it was actually taking it one step further. And it's like, no, these are actual things that you can buy. And so imagine how you put your room together or you imagine it and then and then you can actually then execute on that dream. So I said, well, but home and lifestyle app does not give does not give any any indication as to what you're actually doing. So we said we landed on it's a home styling app. Because again, it's not interior design, but it's again, you were about People said, I'm able to style my room, my home, my home, my rooms to match my vibe. So it's, it's a home styling app. It's not a, it is in the category of home and lifestyle app, but it is a home styling app. Again, not interior, not design, because it was an interior design and not architecture or anything. But again, a home styling app was huge shift for them again in how, when you're trying to communicate what you, what you are in that first line of the app description, it's, it's a home styling app, it's a home and lifestyle app. People go, I know 300 other home and lifestyle apps, but what's a home styling app? Now that sounds, you understand as well, though. It's in simple enough language that you understand what it does. You have the word home, styling, you understand it's to do with styling, <laughs> you know, you know, interior, you know, interior styling. It gives you just a, a, a good talking point. You're able to communicate some level of emotion around your product. You're able to incite some positive emotions that get people interested and make people curious about wanting to learn more. And I think that's the biggest biggest thing. Sometimes we get so caught up in trying to say that everything, that it's an uh and a uh and a uh and a uh and a uh, and, uh, and then you get to the three, four paragraphs and you still haven't quite covered everything. But come down to like a definition that you can squeeze into one sentence and people immediately understand it. And then it's a starting point. You're not supposed to sell the entire product in that one line, but it is that starting point for them to go, wow, for you to make them sit, you know, people sit up in their chairs and go, wow, that sounds amazing. Or I want to learn more. I want to buy it now. Here, take my money. So I think that's the that's that's a key difference. It's really hard to make that shift. But again, sometimes having that really concise definition just it opens the door for more conversations rather than closing them. The example is really, really useful because 
as you were talking, I was thinking how many SaaS companies describe themselves in the category that they're in versus the outcome that they deliver. That's the kind of the nuance behind what you're saying there is that we're not just going to describe the category that we're in or the category we should appear in the in iTunes, but we're actually defining, yes, we sit within that category, but we're a lot more than that. And this is the outcome that we deliver. I think that's a really useful, nuanced approach to, to really reflecting on whether or not you're just describing your category or if you're describing the outcome. And I think it's a really great example. So yeah, really appreciate it. Aiden, this has been a fantastic conversation. I've really enjoyed this. This has been like 48 minutes, absolutely flown past. <laughs> so there's so much I wanted to ask you, so much more I wanted to ask you, but I think I just want to be respectful of your time. So maybe if we can just close with you, just giving a little bit of an outline of, about the work that you do, who you work with typically, and how people can find out more about you. Yeah, absolutely. I'm probably the best place to, to find out would be to try and catch me on LinkedIn. That's why I'm active most of the time. But in, ter- in terms of general, yeah, I work with, I mean, I work with companies quite a lot from you know from founders all the way through to enterprise level SaaS. So again, everyone at different times, but again, it's <laughs> it's a challenge for me, but it's fun for me. I get to meet so many incredible people and building so many incredible things that they're out to change the world. I think it's just fascinating. So I get to geek out on all the, you know, on all this cool tech that's changing the world or is poised to change the world and at the same time be able to take that and make it into a message that's palatable and digestible, you know, for audiences. And I think um and again just so every everything through through that vision, mission, core strategic narrative, that core messaging side of it, what we actually need to say, and then how we need to say it applied to customer-facing assets. Brilliant. Thank you so much for your time. It's been an absolute pleasure. I hope the audience enjoy it as much as I have. So thank you very much for your time. No worries. Thank you so much. Thanks for having me. It's been great speaking with you.